testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission. Well, good morning, Aletheia Church. If you're wondering why this sermon is coming to you inside as opposed to outside where we met for church this morning, uh, we had a technical snafu, and so I am re-recording this after our service. So let's hope that the second time is better than the first time. Uh, but we're glad you're joining with us online. If you have a Bible or your scripture journal, you can go ahead and grab it and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. That's where uh, we are going to be this morning, and we're going to be looking at those first 16 verses uh, in chapter 5. Let me go ahead and read those to you before we uh, dive into the sermon. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give their adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So last week, David Dominguez did an awesome job of unpacking what Paul was teaching to Timothy at the end of chapter four. And he titled it, Do Not Despise Godliness. And what we saw was this call from Timothy to, um, excuse me, from Paul to Timothy, that we need to pursue godliness because it's one, it is God's standard, but two, because it can be done, that those who are in Christ can pursue godliness. And we need to train for that godliness. One of the interesting things that I think uh, David did a really good job of unpacking for us is that godliness isn't something that we just go to bed uh, one night and wake up with the next morning, but that is a consistent practicing uh, of the commands and practicing of our faith that leads us to godly character. And so just as if uh, a team practices so that it can perform uh, in its uh, main sporting event, whether that's a football team on the weekend or another team throughout the week, uh, that you will hear any coach that leads a team say, uh, 
what allowed us to perform at our highest ability during the game was that we had a good practice uh, this past week. And it works the same way out in our lives that we practice out our faith, working towards that godliness that God has promised us in Christ. And then lastly, we saw Paul say to Timothy, we pursue godliness and we train for godliness because godliness grants authority for us to speak into others' lives. That God uses that character and uh, that godliness to give us a, a level of respect or authority with others where people will trust us to be able to speak into their lives and help them. And so I highly encourage you go back and listen to that sermon if you have not already had the opportunity to do so, because you will definitely be blessed by it. But this morning, and I need to give a little bit of a disclaimer, uh, at Aletheia, we uh, work through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and that's called expository Bible preaching. And the reason that we do that is because the beauty of doing that is that it forces us to tackle subjects and wrestle with with ideas and commands in God's word that we might otherwise not challenge ourselves with or not speak on. And we've seen this multiple times, even as we studied Paul's letter to Timothy here, that we looked at the reality uh, of God's law and the application of it now as followers of Christ and how that can be difficult. And we tend to avoid God's law as Christians sometimes, and we need to not do that. Uh, we worked through the importance of prayer and, and how prayer is an important uh, tool in the life of the church that God wants us to use. And then we talked about the roles of men, the roles of women, and the qualifications of leaders in Jesus's church, and what God has set as standards for that. And then even a couple weeks ago, uh, we worked through how to engage false teachers and how God wants us to do that. And so this morning, again, we're going to be forced to think and pray through a, a topic that will likely not seem to probably have a ton of relevance to us at face value. Uh, yet the crux of Paul's words to Timothy are important for us as a church in how we live out the implications of the good news of what Jesus has done. And so what we have seen Paul attempting to do uh, for Timothy is encourage him, encouraging him as a leader that he would give himself to God's word and trust in it and trust in its sufficiency for his leadership to devote himself to godly conduct so that he might be an example to those around him. And that lastly, Paul has encouraged Timothy to relate and lead the flock that God has entrusted him to shepherd. And so this morning, he's going to move on from encouraging Timothy to pursue godliness and use that as an example to others to how to practically live out godly character. And there's some practical things that he can do to do that. And he's going to focus for the most of our time this morning, for the vast majority of it, he's going to focus on widows and how to relate and lead them. And at face value, many of us, especially at our church here in Gainesville, um, are likely to think that that may not be something that we're going to be faced with a whole lot. The average age of someone who attends our church is in their mid-20s. And considering the average age of someone attending our church, it'd be easy to kind of overlook this passage and not take much out of it. But it matters to God that we know what he says here. And if we 
learn from what Paul shares with Timothy. It will lay a foundation for us for how we live our lives and how we prepare for the later stages of our own lives. And so there's three things I hope you guys will see this morning as we work through these 16 verses. One is Paul's encouragement to Timothy on how we can interact with one another and how specifically Timothy interacts with the church. We're gonna see that the church is called to be a family to the familyless. And then we're gonna see lastly, that family is called to support family. So let's dive in to these first two verses here in 1 Timothy chapter five and learn what Paul has to say about how we interact with one another. Starting in verse one, he says this, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. And that word rebuke in the Greek is this Greek word epipleso, and it means to strike or beat upon, but it, it really it has a, a very uh, rough uh, connotation to it. It means to, to harshly strike somebody, uh, meaning that uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, don't, don't harshly respond to these people in uh, the church that you're leading here in Ephesus. Now, I need to make maybe just a, a, something simple here. Paul is not denouncing uh, rebuking altogether. Uh, if, you, if you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 27, verse five, uh, Solomon shares this with uh, his son. He says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love, right? He's saying to him, hey, if someone rebukes you because you are wrong or you are in the wrong, that, it, that is better uh, than hidden love, that it is good for your soul to be rebuked when necessary. And then if you even turn over to, to verse 20 of 1 Timothy chapter five, Paul actually says this to Timothy. He says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Meaning that there are opportunities and places where rebuking others is gonna be an important part of walking with others in maturity and godliness towards Christ. But in this particular instance, I think what's happening here is, is Paul is giving Timothy a, a foundation on how to lead and walk through life with the church that he's shepherding. And he's trying to encourage Timothy, a younger pastor here, as how to relate and lead his congregation. And here's his advice, encourage them. He says with the older men, encourage them as you would encourage your father. With younger men, encourage them as you would encourage your brother. Timothy, with older women, encourage them as you would your mother. And with younger women, encourage them as you would encourage your sister. Right, he's, he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, the, the purpose of the church, the, the family, the body of Christ is that we would be building one another up, encouraging one another to follow after Jesus. And that although rebuking may be necessary at times, that it is wise for you to first try to encourage people, even when they are in sin and rebellion. One of the things I shared this morning with the, the church as I was preaching uh, during our time this morning is that I've had the privilege to pastor at this church and see many young people grow in their relationship with Christ. And, but if I had one critique of our church, and this includes me, this is something that I think even I struggle with and God is still working on in my own heart, is that, that 
one of my main critiques of, of our church and primarily myself is we have a ton of zeal and energy and passion for God. And that passion leads us to a deep love of God's word and to listen to God's word and want to follow it and encourage other people to do so. Uh, but at times, because we are young and because we have such passion and zeal, at times we lack wisdom. And the Bible talks about knowledge and wisdom and understanding in various ways, right? He says that knowledge is, is like facts uh, or information or things that we memorize. And so like a vocation for that would be scholars. It uses that, that terminology, knowledge, to describe knowing something. Uh, it uses another term, uh, understanding. And, and, and understanding biblically means that we understand the meaning of something, that we understand the principles that it's laying out and we're able to reason our way through it and understand it and then teach it to others. So a vocation of people that understand something is that they then can teach it. But wisdom in scripture is having the knowledge, having the understanding of God's word and then knowing what to do with that applying it to our lives and taking action in our own lives. This is what the prophets would do in the Old Testament where they would take God's word and call Israel to action to respond to God's word. If you look at Psalm 111, the psalmist says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practiced it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Right, he, he shares with us, right? The psalmist says, look, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding, but all those who practice it have a good understanding, meaning that we put this into practice, that we don't just need to know God's word, but we need to gain and grow in wisdom so that we might apply it and know how we're to live out this uh, truth in our lives. And so Paul is sharing with Timothy wisdom, insight on how we, the body of Christ, are to, to relate with one another. That our chief aim should be to encourage and build up one another. And in so doing, build up one another in Christ so that we might worship God in spirit and in truth. Right? To simplify this, right? Paul says, hey, Timothy, if you need to default to a way to respond to people, start with encouragement. Start with encouragement, and then if rebuking be necessary, move there. But start with encouragement. And then Paul moves from this treatment of the body of Christ at whole, where he says, encourage one another and build one another up to a super practical application that is happening inside this church at Ephesus, but will absolutely have implications for us in 2020. And that is this. We are called as the church to be a family to the familyless. Right, look at verse three in 1 Timothy chapter five. Honor widows who are truly widows. Right, so here, here's what we need to know, right? Widows are those that have lost uh, their husband or lost their wife and uh, they are familyless at this point. Maybe their children have gone on and moved out, you know, or maybe they don't live nearby or whatever it may be, but they are familyless. And the heartbeat of God has been from the outset of his word to us, his revelation to us has been that God cares about those who are without a family, right? He cares about the sojourners, as he says. He cares about the widows. He cares about orphans. And he wants God's people to care for them as well. He says this in Psalm 146, 
verse nine, he says, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. When Moses is sharing with Israel uh, what they need to do right before they enter the promised land, he shares this in Deuteronomy chapter 26. He says this, starting in verse 12, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, giving to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Right? He explains to them that their tithe right, needs to go to the Levites who wore the priesthood to take care of them, to take care of the sojourner, the fatherless or the orphan, right, and the widow. That God's people were called to come together, to gather together, to provide and care for those that could not provide and care for themselves. And then lastly, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago when we were learning about deacons, right? In Acts chapter six, this is what the early church was doing, right? Now in these days, starting in verse one, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, right? What, uh, what was happening there is that the church in Jerusalem was helping the widows and they weren't angry because they were helping widows. The issue was that the Jewish widows were receiving preferential treatment over the Greek widows. And so that was the issue that was working on, but they were doing what God asks of us, right? To help the fatherless, to help the widow, to give charity, benevolence, whatever terminology you want to use, but to be a family to those without a family, right? This is God's call and design that we as the church would care for those that need help and care. And this is what the church in Ephesus was doing. Now, what, we're, what we see in chapter five of 1 Timothy though, is not only a call to be a family, to be an agent of change, to be uh, the hands and feet of Jesus, to care for those that need care. But we, we see a call to that care, but we also see a call to use wisdom in how that support is given, right? What we see in Paul's instruction to Timothy is that the character of a widow should be taken into account before giving her help and that the circumstances of the widow should be taken into account before helping, right? And so the qualifying character of a widow that, that needs the help from the church is this, right? She has her hope set on God, right? She displays godly character in verse five, that she was faithful to her husband in verse nine, and that she has a history of good works and serving in the church in verse 10, right? Paul's point to Timothy is that if the church is going to come, come behind a widow and help her and serve her, that she must first have answered God's call in her life and displayed a pattern of that behavior, and now the church should do the same for her, he also then goes on to mention disqualifying character of a widow or disqualifying circumstances of a widow. He says that if a, if a widow is self-indulgent, she's spiritually dead and that she needs the gospel far more than she needs physical help and that God can chastise her through that and lead her to Christ. But the call is not to help them because they have proven to be lazy, unhelpful, and a sluggard. He goes on to say that young widows should just remarry Right, and that if they if they don't, they become gossipers and idlers, and that the church should not support those that participate in gossip, laziness, and acts of division. 
The call of the church is to not help those who are unqualified because they have proven, proven to be lazy, gossip, gossipers, and unhelpful and sluggards in their own life. Now, what I'm, going about, to, what I'm about to say is not popular in the, probably either church culture or even in popular culture right now. But we have to take God at his word and believe it to be true and follow it. And what I believe God is laying out for us here and talking about these different types of widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is that he is saying to us, you are called to serve and help people, church. But God actually does set standards for that help. In this particular example, God is saying, if the widow is unwilling to serve others, to love God, to love her family, and is lazy, she is displaying that she is unworthy of the church's help. Why? Because the church is a family, and family works together and cares for one another, and she has displayed that she is unwilling to do so. Church, hear me when I say this, and this is something that I said this morning as well. We need to be careful. We have to be careful to exercise wisdom in how we provide aid and care for those around us. Need alone is not enough. That we risk enabling and not calling people to true repentance and faith in Christ if we just provide service without any parameters attached to it. And that may seem unloving. I think one of the things I hear frequently is we don't get to decide uh, whether someone needs our help or not. Actually, that's not true. God has given us parameters and said that it is right and wise for us to exercise wisdom on how we help people. Following God's design in service and charity to others is important because it enforces a number of things. If we have a plan and standards in place, it will enforce our commitment as a family to true service to those who need it, who are in Christ. But it will also protect the church from slander and the work of Satan. That's exactly what Paul says in verses 14 and 15, right? Look at what he says. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Right, here's what he's saying. Right, he is saying that we must, as a church, right, demand standards upon people who are coming to ask of us for help. Right, what he's saying is, is that if we don't, we invite the opportunity for slander and misuse of God's uh, provision to us in helping others. That it is not unloving for us to turn people away that are asking for help because they refuse to first help themselves. If they refuse to follow God's commands and design on how we live our lives. It is not unloving to ask people to follow God's design, especially when we are attempting to. We must, as the church, take seriously the call to serve the widow the orphan, the sojourner, because the church is a family when there is no family. But we must do so within God's designed standards. Which leads to the last point that Paul makes here in chapter five that I wanna point out to us. 
And that is that family is first called to support family. Let me read verses four through eight for you again. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Right, what Paul is sharing with Timothy is, hey, one of the things we must disciple one another in, and this is something that is important for us as a young church to understand, God calls the, the biological family to be the first line of support to widows and orphans, right? And there are a number of reasons for that that he shares here, right? In verse four, he says that it pleases God for us to do so. Right, if, you, if you turn over to Mark chapter 7, there's this beautiful story of Jesus talking with the Pharisees and dealing with them not taking this call seriously, that they were ignoring the call to help their family over their own traditions. Starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 7, he says this, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with their hands that were defiled that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy over you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to to, to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Right, here's Jesus's point. You're so worried about whether my disciples wash their hands or not because it is the tradition of your elders, and yet a clear command in scripture to you is that you would take care of your father or mother if need be once they get advanced in age. And yet you have made it a tradition that if they set their money aside as Corbin, that means it's set aside for the temple to be given to the temple, that you then release them from having to help their father or mother because that money has been set aside to give to the temple. He said, you have denied the command of God to help your family. And God hates that. Right, this is a clear indication from scripture that God wants us to help and provide for our family if need be. 
He goes on to say that not only does it please God for family to support family, especially when they're widowed or orphaned, but that God gives us as younger men and women the opportunity to repay our parents for their sacrifice, right? He says that in verse four, right? He says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. This past week, as I was looking for, uh, through this passage and preparing, I thought, man, I've got kids. I wonder what it's going to cost me to raise my son. My youngest son, Josiah, right, was born right before 2015. And the statistics that I could find said that any child born uh, in 2015 was going to cost their parents, on average, $285,000 to raise by the time they turned 18. Right? My wife and I may need to take on a second job. I'm not sure. But what Paul is saying to us as we read this is, hey, mom and dad sacrificed a lot for you, right? This is an opportunity for you later in life to give back to them and serve them. And I know that not all of us have great relationships with our parents and not all of us had moms and dads that did a great job of raising us and supporting us. But the call of God is the same. If your parents are believers and raised you well and loved you and took care of you, you get a great opportunity to give back to them later in life if this situation were to arise. And if you didn't have great parents and if they didn't provide for you, how much more can you display the beauty of what God has done in your own life if you were to give back to them even when they didn't give to you? Paul goes on to say that not only does it please God for us to take care of widows in our own family, not only does it give us an opportunity to repay them for their service, but to not do so is to deny the faith, right? He says that in verse eight, right? Those that refuse to help their parents when they're in need, if they are able, show that the gospel has not taken root in their own lives. They show that they don't understand the magnitude of the riches that they have been given by, by God in Christ, what God has given to them, what he has given to them is of eternal value and they cannot repay it. And they show that they have not been changed and transformed by the gospel. And lastly, he gives a practical reason in verse 16 why families are called to do this. Families do this so that they cannot, so that they do not overburden the church, right? Families assume this burden themselves so that the church is not overburdened by those that need care and can help those that really need help. And so what we see here in 1 Timothy 5 is that the church is a family and that we're called to encourage one another first and foremost. And that as that family grows, family takes care of family first and foremost in your biological family, but then the church is called to provide family to the familyless. And so there's lots of practical instruction in here today. And, and how, we, how we live this out and how we tie this together, I want us to walk away from studying this, encouraged and equipped and empowered to live this out, to live out Paul's instructions to Timothy as a young church. And so here's how I think God is equipping us, church. Here's how, here, I, here I think is his words to us. The call has been laid out before us. We are called to care for widows and orphans. And so personally, right, how are you preparing for that? Personally, for my wife and I, we have already had conversations and discussions on being ready to take in our parents and care for them if need be. It's not needed now, but we are prepared and will continue to prepare so that we might answer the call if that comes. For the church, 
Is our church living up to these standards? Are we serving widows? Are we serving the poor? I believe we are. And we are able to hold one another accountable, both to our immediate families and as a whole. But that we are called to make sure the church is doing this and that we would pray together that God would allow us to show the love of Christ in the way that we serve the widows and orphans. And not only does I, do I think God is empowering us, I mean, excuse me, equipping us by having us know what we need to do, but I also think he has empowered us to actually do it. Let's be honest. This is a lofty and high standard, right? Caring and providing for people who cannot take care of themselves is difficult work. Helping those who cannot help themselves is not easy. But it's a reflection of the gospel and what God has already done for us. Serving widows and orphans, be they in our biological family or as the church family, displays the work of Christ. Because we all, every one of us, are like widows, orphans. Scripture says that we were lost, alone and without a family, separated from our creator, wandering apart from God's love and design. And yet Jesus Christ chose to sacrifice, put on human flesh, as it explains in Philippians chapter two, that he submitted himself to the point of death, death on a cross. What we see in the life of Jesus Christ is that Jesus looked at us, orphans without a father, alienated from our creator because of our sin and rebellion, and he acted. He, fathered, he followed the father's plan. It was costly, it was brave, it was sacrificial, but he acted. And in doing so, he secured for us new life. He secured for us a family. He provided a way when there was no way. He provided adoption as sons and daughters when we were orphans. And he calls on us, his church, to follow his example and provide a way when there is no way to provide for widows and orphans to provide a family when there is no family, to care for others as he cared for us. And church, if we do this, if we live out what Paul asks of us here in chapter five in his encouragement to Timothy, we don't just obey God. We don't just follow a set of rules. No, we we take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we show that it has radically transformed us. And we declare it to our church that we do this because Jesus first did this for us. We declare to our families the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And we declare to an unbelieving world the beauty and majesty of what Jesus has done, declaring that God provides a way when there is no way. 
and that we will be the hands and feet of Jesus to provide a way when there is no way. And in doing this, the gospel carries the burden of caring for those who cannot care for themselves. Church, living this out will allow us to show God is faithful through his church in Jesus Christ. Let's embrace this calling together. If not immediately, that God would equip us now and empower us to be ready for when that time and season may come to the glory of God. A testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission, which is to see the gospel like the death and raised to walk in newness of life.